Yes, our second reading is from Acts, book of Acts, chapter 17, starting at verse 16. So in this pew Bible, it's double one six one, page double one six one. So Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who, had happened, who happened to be there. A, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler taught, trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are pre presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their, their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the, the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as, he needed, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and, be de and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they would live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice with justice by man and he, and he has appointed, by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, Dionysius and a member of the Areopagus and a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of God. Well, good morning and uh, thank you very much for your warm invitation uh, to be here once again. It's always a joy to be amongst uh, my friends at Surrey Hills. 
Before we come to uh, study the word of God, let's uh, seek God's help uh, in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we have not received the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand those things that you have freely given us. Since you have caused uh, this word to be written, uh, we pray that you would also be its interpreter to us. Help us to understand its meaning. May it convict our hearts. May it strengthen our wills and our resolve. And Father, we pray that uh, we might find fulfilment and meaning in life so that we can live life to the very full. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I wonder whether you've ever had an experience uh, which wonderfully concentrates the mind. Uh, for me, uh, the most concentrating of experiences are usually uh, tests. Tests or trials through which I have to pass. You know, I freely confess at this point that uh, I, I, lived, I led uh, a reasonably carefree life as a youth. And it didn't really dawn on me until my last year at school that the high school certificate, which is the examination that we have uh, for matriculation in New South Wales, was a really big deal. And... Uh, in those last couple of months uh, before that exam, I can remember my pulse rising. Uh, I'm sure my blood pressure did as well. Uh, and I became enormously focused uh, in order to pass those exams and, in a sense, to secure my future. I can remember uh, sitting in the great hall of our school you know, surrounded by hundreds of honour boards and things like that, the names of past old boys, and being gripped, in a sense, with uh, the importance of what I was about to do. It was frightfully hot. It was very humid, uh, as it is in Sydney in late November, and uh, there I was sitting in this hall. And... One by one, I saw people leaving the exams, uh, indeed all the exams, uh, often earlier than they were entitled to go. And I remember sitting there and thinking to myself, this is a really important test. It's going to determine my future. And I'm not leaving until the very last moment. I'm not stopping to write until I'm told to put my pen down. It's amazing what a judgment can do to concentrate the mind. And here we uh, have a book that concludes on a very climactic note which reminds us that life is essentially serious business because ultimately we face a judge. This is a sermon in a sense, an extended discourse that is designed to remind us 
that the only life that makes sense in a fallen world is a life that is rooted in God. If God exists and there is a final judgment, then everything matters. And Solomon contrasts this serious pursuit of life with another kind of life, a life where God is missing, a life of emptiness and meaningless, and he contrasts us with this true life where God is judge. See, if God is just a figment of our imagination uh, and there is no final sense of accountability for anything we do, life is essentially pointless. And that's one of the constant refrains that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. Life under the sun, that is, life without God, life without any divine perspective, life apart from the eternal realm, is meaningless. It's pointless. Arthur Miller, the American playwright who became famous for his uh, play, The Crucible, uh, also wrote a book called After the Fall. And in one of the scenes of that book, he has one of his characters, a man by the name of Quentin, who says how pointless life is when you dismiss God from it. Listen to what he says. For many years, he says, I looked at life like a case in law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then you prove you're good at love. Then a good father. Finally, you prove how wise or powerful you are. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that one moves on an upward path towards some elevation where, God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned. A verdict, anyhow. I think now my disaster really began when I looked up one day and I saw that the bench was empty. There was no judge in sight at all. All that remained was this endless argument with myself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. Now, of course, uh, Quinton isn't actually saying anything new. It's all been said before. And the writer to Ecclesiastes says, if this is the way that you want to live life, like Quinton, you will discover that life is essentially meaningless. And that's how he begins uh, his book. Vanity, vanity, everything is vanity or everything is meaningless. And interestingly, uh, this is what he tells us in the 12th chapter at the 8th verse. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. Now, these identical sayings, both at the beginning and the end of the book, are function as, as a literary marker, what they call an inclusio, which reminds us that he's come to the end of his argument. He's wrapping it up. And he's actually giving us a contrast between 
two ways to live. You can either live as though God doesn't matter and God does not exist, which leads you to vanity, pointlessness and despair, or you can live in the light of the fact that we face a righteous judge who also happens to be a saviour. And life can be full of meaning and joy. Now this meaningless existence uh, is a terrible thing. See, it's a terrible thing to live in the world where God is banished from it. Even when God's in the world, it's hard enough to understand it. But without God, nothing makes sense. And the term that Solomon uses here to describe the meaninglessness of life without God uh, is a Hebrew word, hebel. Literally, it refers to a, a breath or a vapour, like steam rising from a kettle. You ever watch the steam coming out of your kettle? Suddenly it just disappears into the atmosphere. It becomes nothing. And so Solomon's point is simply this. If you have no place for God in your life, if you don't believe in him, do you realise what that means for you? You're nothing more than a vapour. Your steam that rises into nothingness. You pass into oblivion. That's the lot of life or the lot of all those who live life without God. So when he concludes his book in the same way as he began it, it ought to strike us with enormous force. Uh, we should be left with a sense of complete folly of thinking that the world belongs to us and that we are masters of the universe and we have a handle on everything. Oh, no, you don't, says Solomon. The only thing that you can, the only conclusion that you can come to if you want to live apart from God is that life is ultimately an affair with despair. And so now we reach the very end of the journey of this discourse and Solomon is reminding us of the great spiritual reality which all of us need to face and that is God is both our creator and our redeemer and following him is the only sensible thing to do. And so he begins in chapter 12, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in him. Find God early in life. You know, in a sense, God is the spiritual target and you need to acquire it. Then in verses 6 and 7, he says this, Remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Do you hear what he's saying? Give your greatest energy and your best years to pursuing God. We do it the other way around. 
You know, we'll, we'll live life on our terms and live life to the full without God. And then, you know, just before we die, we'll try and make peace with God. But it doesn't work out that way. And Solomon reminds us throughout the letter that everything you put your hand to, if God is not at the centre of your life, turns into meaninglessness. Try to make your market work. Apart from God, it will all turn to dust. It's all vanity, all striving after win. I know we all hanker after the top job, but it's not particularly attractive at the top. And many of those who pay the price to get there discover that there are certain deficits that come with that responsibility. If you give your life to pursuing wisdom and knowledge, he says in both chapter 1 and 2, it will only increase your sorrow and vexation. In other words, trying to understand the world through philosophy or self-help or whatever it is that you try to integrate your whole perception of reality with, it won't lead to freedom. He says it will only lead ultimately to despair. He says, pleasure also is meaningless and vanity. doesn't matter what you try. The best of wines, sex, song, parks, houses, vineyards, gold, silver, whatever it is that you acquire, it will not bring lasting satisfaction. And even if we manage to hold on to our money, it can never satisfy our souls. And the ultimate vanity of all, of course, is death, that we're swept away, not at a time of our own choosing, but often in a way that robs us of our dignity. And so Solomon, in a sense, is pushing us and prodding us with all these problems that we face in life, and he's pushing and prodding us in a way a farmer would prod you know, a herd of cattle to lead them uh, to a certain place. In this case, that certain place is back to God. Now, of course, meaninglessness is not the last word of the book. It is a reminder to people that that's where you'll end up if you try to find meaning in any other place apart from God. But we'd be wrong to assume that this book simply casts a black pall of despair over life. It doesn't. What is front and centre here in the roundup of Ecclesiastes is God. And particularly, uh, God the judge. Now, that may grate or collide uh, with your thinking, but in reality, it's a great comfort. See, we live in a world of make believe. Our scientific views of the world these days are naturalistic. We've essentially disposed of God as our creator. Uh, we think that life simply began as a result of pure chance. So ultimately we're not accountable to anybody. And we no longer believe in sin either. We just believe in this ridiculous idea of inevitable progress. 
And we've had more wars in the last century than we've had probably in all the wars before then. And we've certainly lost more human life in the last century than we've ever lost before. We're living, as it were, in a fool's paradise. And what Solomon is doing here is having dismissed the life of unbelief as futile, he focuses on the urgency of everybody being fully submitted to God and putting God at the very centre of their life so that they'll be able to live life to the full. And so the first thing he has to say here is that we need to turn with God and we need to serve him with all our hearts from our earliest days. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. I want to thank God for my grandmother. I barely knew her. She lived on the other side of the city and because she was a Christian and my parents were not, uh, we had very infrequent visits. But I can remember, even as a three-year-old, receiving little packages in the mail from her that were Bible stories. You know those little Ladybird series that used to be around all over the place uh, where you'd learn stories from the scripture. And I got them. I can remember reading them. And I had, as it were, burned into my mind and my imagination as a very young child things that I never learnt at home or from any of the peer group with which I mixed. As a result of my grandmother, who obviously prayed for me and uh, persuaded my parents to send me to a Sunday school, I was sent to a Sunday school at about the age of four only two houses down the road and uh, on Sunday morning everybody else in the house slept in but probably I think due to my grandmother <laughs> I was usually dressed and sent off and I spent two hours at church. Why? I think because she believed that this is a decision a person needs to make very early in life and the earlier the better. Putting off this decision, the writer to Ecclesiastes says, is the height of folly. Life becomes more complicated as you go on. The circumstances and the pressures of life crowd in upon you. You so, become so preoccupied with earning a living and driving the kids everywhere and meeting deadlines and demands and filling out your tax returns and getting the shopping done getting the library books back and all the other things that consume your time that you forget about God. And so what he's saying here is make it early and do it now before you get boxed in by a decision relating to your career that may take you far away from God or a marriage where you have a partner who doesn't want to pursue God. Do it before you strike chronic illness and old age where your capacity to think and read and muse are now gone. 
In other words, what he's saying is make your biggest decision as soon as you can and then let all the others follow. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. I wonder whether you've realised as a parent that this is the most important thing you can do for your child. I know, you know, some of you may, on the very first day or second day after your child's been born, ring up the school that you want them to go to and book them in. That's great. But let me tell you the most important thing you can do for them is pray for them. It's why one of the prayers that I always prayed with families who received newborn children right there in the hospital virtually as soon as the child was born, that God would take possession of this child. It determines everything. Don't you want your children to grow up as God-centred, spirit-filled children? Only then will they reach their fullest potential. We need to start that life now. Don't wait until the peak of your capacities and your energies have left you. If you're a young person, make the decision now. Don't fool around. I know it seems attractive to go off and do something else, but Solomon's saying, do this in the days of your youth before the years of trouble come. I know people have a different idea on that now. I've met parents who think that the most important thing for their children at this particular time is to go and enjoy life and taste it to the full. They're happy to shell out a large amount of money to send them off to a university college without any thought of what moral temptations they may face or without any thought of what sending them to that university might mean. Some parents think, you know, it's a good time to sow wild oats. Now, after you've done that, you can straighten your life out and get on the right track. Well, I've been to a university college. I've lived there. I've seen what it leads to, and it's every bit as futile as Solomon describes. Of course, some people today would recoil at Solomon's notion that we need to raise our children for God. You know, take Richard Dawkins, for instance. Uh, he said that Christian parents' obsession with Christian education for their children is nothing short of spiritual child abuse. Is he right? Well... I don't think so. Solomon certainly doesn't. Uh, when Christians introduce the teaching of the Bible to their children, uh, they do it because they believe that knowing God and knowing God's ways will actually bring blessing to their children's lives. And let me add, this is quite different to the state forcing atheism on every child by deliberately writing God out of the curriculum or depicting him in such a way that no young person would ever want to believe in him. I mean, let's ask the question, who really is involved in religious child abuse here? A religious family or the state who doesn't want the child to know about God? 
I don't care whether the state's communist or capitalist. When it makes every effort to write God out of the curriculum, especially in science, history, uh, personal health and development, uh, the English curriculum. See, if the state was being fair, it would allow children to make the choice. But it doesn't want people to make the choice. It wants them just to choose the one alternative. And children need to be given that choice and taught the faith at the earliest stage of their lives. Now, I remember when I was teaching my, uh, my kids the Shorter Catechism. And they started learning it, you know, three and four, and they could talk about it and even give a Bible verse for it. Uh, somebody who was one of my relatives said to me that I was propagandising my children. Really? So I'm propagandising my children by learning the Bible, but I'm not by making them learn their musical scales or learning the alphabet or learning poetry or learning how to spell or becoming proficient in grammar or knowing the periodic table or actually learning a language. I mean, you know, let's get serious. All these things were imposed on children. What's wrong with teaching children about the true God? Now, it seems to me that people who are opposed to religious education are nevertheless very pro uh, learning you know, the letters of the alphabet. They're very much in favour of musical education. They like us to learn poetry by heart. They also like us, incidentally, to learn good manners and social etiquette. And they realise that we need to do that because we're impressionable in childhood. But why do they exclude God? Well, Solomon says here that you're a fool if you do because it's the most important decision you will ever have to make. And God says that the early life is crucial. So I want to challenge you today, uh, if you're a young person, to seriously face this challenge here from God. To remember him in the days of your youth. Don't put it off. And if you're a parent, what are you doing to help your child to know the true God? You know, are you making sure that they're in a place where they're likely to hear the truth? Are you ensuring that they're surrounded by friends who are likely to lead them to that conclusion? And likewise, if you're grandparents, although in a sense, you know, you're just kind of proxies at a distance, uh, I shared the story about my grandmother for a very good reason. I think she was instrumental under God in helping to frame my earliest thoughts. And so, have you thought about these things? Solomon says they're really important. Remember the creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come. The second thing that Solomon says here is in verses 9 to 12. You need to make the right use 
of the knowledge you have. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end and much study wearies the body. Solomon has spoken a lot about wisdom in his book. And here he's actually talking about the practical function of the truth. We know, need to know the truth and we need to know what the truth is for. It, it's one thing to know it, it's another thing to know what it's for. And he tells us this in this passage. Uh, he tells us that as a wise man, as a teacher, uh, he wanted that truth to be embedded in people's minds so that it shaped them in a very profound way. Notice what he says. He searched to find out just the right words, just the right words, and what was upright and true. Why? Because he knows that truth changes lives. That's why preachers need to be fastidious about preparing you know, their sermons and Bible studies, because the right words can have a profound effect in a person's life. And he sought to find delightful words and to write the words of truth because he knew that those words were like time bombs that would go down into people's minds and into their inner being and transform them. Now notice he says that these words do two things. They function, first of all, as goads. Most of us probably are unfamiliar with goads, but in the ancient world, uh, people were not, and those involved in animal husbandry are not unaware of them. Now, they're, they're, they're effectively uh, prodders with a very sharp end on them. Today, in our you know, technologically advanced world, we don't need the sharp end, we just put electricity into it. So if you've ever wanted to see how you get a pig up a race into a truck, uh, you just apply a little stick, turn on the switch, and you've never seen a pig move so fast. It's a prod. It's a goad. These are words in the Bible that goad your conscience. Or they cause you great perplexity and soul-searching. They raise all sorts of issues that bring you to a dead halt in life and force you to face up to spiritual reality. And he's saying in this book, he's put in a lot of things that make you think very seriously about the good life. What is the good life? See, if I'm pursuing life in this world without God, uh, he wants me to see just how painful that is. And so every time I veer off course and leave God out of my thought, he presents problems 
which cause a lot of pain and remind me of the folly of abandoning God. He also talks about nails. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails. Goads prod and prick and make us feel uncomfortable. Nails fasten things to something. He wants God's revelation fastened in our mind and fastened to our heart so that it becomes directive in all that we do. The words of God, in other words, function like goads on the one hand, making us uncomfortable, convicting our consciences, and also act as doctrine or truth which forms a reliable guide and keeps us close and fastened to God. Notice they all came from one shepherd. Now remember Solomon's father was David and he said the Lord is my shepherd. Here's the doctrine of the inspiration of the Bible. That every word written in scripture proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. It's given by inspiration. It's the breathed out word of God. And he's reminding us therefore that this book has divine authority. It's not just some human composition, but it's something that has been divinely provided for us. And then he makes this strange warning in verse 12. Be careful how you read, my son. Be warned. The writing of books is endless. Excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. Now, notice he's not saying here don't read books. I think what he's saying is be highly selective in the books you read because there's thousands of them. If you've ever been to a huge library like the Mitchell Library in Sydney or the State Library here, you walk in and you think, wow. I don't know how many million books are housed down in Melbourne, but I'm pretty sure it's far more than any of us could ever hope you know, to read. And so if we're going to be focused on the truth and on the most important things in life, we necessarily have to be selective. And he's saying here, get your priority right. Know God's revelation like the back of your hand. Francis Bacon once said, be careful how you read. Read so as to mark, learn and inwardly digest. Devote yourself to scripture. And finally, he says, uh, be in awe of God and follow his word. Why? Well, because he tells us here that life is unfinished business. Remember the creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come. Because he says, now all has been heard, verse 13, here is the conclusion of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Now, I know that sounds frightening, but it's also very liberating. It reminds me, incidentally, that the whole of life is full of purpose. Do you realise there are people in Melbourne who get up every day out of bed and they don't believe in God and they don't believe in a divine creator? And they're essentially going out into a meaningless world. There's no end point in sight. 
There's no assessment of life. There's no assessment and there's no end point and there's no clear direction. That suggests to me that people are going around in circles. They don't know. But here he's saying life is unfinished business. It's amazing, isn't it, how people ignore the reality of life. They ignore the reality of danger. You know, I, I read about uh, three accidents that took place just in the last couple of months in Thailand. Now, I can't believe that these accidents took place, but one took place on New Year's Eve uh, in uh, one of the... Uh, in, in one of the tourist areas where uh, a crocodile trainer, believe it or not, took a stick and whacked a crocodile on the head. It opened its jaws and to show off he put his arm in the crocodile's mouth. Now he may have had confidence in the crocodile but it, it, it wasn't well grounded uh, because the crocodile cro closed its mouth and broke his arm and nearly ripped it off. Now you'd think, wouldn't you, a person who's been around crocodiles all that time would understand this sort of stuff. It's pretty basic. You know, crocodiles are crocodiles. Then uh, on New Year's, or a couple of, a few days later, a trainer at Phuket was attacked um, following doing something, you know, relatively stupid as well. And then a few days after that, a, a French tourist at Khao Yai posed with a crocodile for a selfie. Can you imagine, you know, the phone on the end of a stick, sort of over here with a crocodile, and was half eaten. People denying reality. And here the writer is reminding us that there is a great reality that we need to keep in mind over all of life, and it's that God is at the end of it. And he'll judge us. He's going to judge us how we used our time, whether we wasted it on foolish pleasures or worked to serve the Lord. He's going to judge how we used our money, whether it was devoted to ourselves or devoted essentially to God's purposes. He's going to examine whether we were truly respectful and honouring to those in authority, especially our parents. He's going to examine how we actually treated children and whether we cared for them. And what we did for little children will matter. He's going to examine what we did at work and the kind of witness that we left in the workplace. And he's especially going to be interested in how we reacted in our households and within our family. The final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, but that everything matters. And all of life is serious because of this great reality. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every evil thing. What matters most, therefore, is... Uh, the decision that you and I make with respect to God. You know, do you regard him as your creator? The one who's 
you know, the ground of your very life and existence. The one in whom you live and move and have your being. Do you understand that your salvation is ultimately dependent upon the goodwill and the merits and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And are you living life as though you have entrusted your all to him? You see, into this vain world, Jesus came. He feared God. He followed his commandments. He lived a life of perfect righteousness and holiness. He died as the innocent lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you know why he did it? He did it because he loved you and because he loved me. And he did it so that on the last day you could stand before God, holy and blameless before him in love. So that when the great book was opened and God turned to the son and said, write down all the sins and transgressions that Peter Hastie has committed, he will say, Heavenly Father, it's blank. It's been wiped. It's covered by my blood and by my perfect righteousness. And he has been made free. You know, soon Jesus is going to come again. And on that day, when, according to the gospel, uh, God will judge the secrets of people's hearts. God has fixed a day on when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. When that day comes, everyone who believes in Jesus will stand before that righteous judge and look into the eyes of a loving saviour. And so the plea of Solomon is that you and I turn to God and do it as quickly as we can. For those of you who are young, do it today. For those of you who are old, if you haven't done it, do it now. And for all of us, whether we have or if we have, let's reaffirm it and let's reconsecrate ourselves uh, to live for God's glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you again for these timeless words, the words of the one true shepherd. Uh, may they prick our consciences like goads. May they draw us to your son and unite us to him like firmly fixed nails so that at the last uh, we may be glad to stand before you and entirely unashamed knowing that our great hope is in our Saviour Jesus and in the work of your Holy Spirit who has renewed our hearts, opened our eyes and brought us to true and living faith. We ask it, our God, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.